The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Thank you. And thank you, kids. Wasn't that fun? Was that fun? Yeah. Thanks to you. My name is Craig, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be the one that we're going to be continuing the series on First Peter that we've been going through. So you're stuck with me this morning. Don't worry. It'll be over before you know it, Okay. I'm kind of talking to myself. Um, all right, so if you've been with us any length of time, you know we've been going through this book. This morning, we're going to find ourselves in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be. I don't know, any of you read LA Weekly? Recently, LA Weekly did an article entitled The 10 Most Embarrassing Things to Admit in Los Angeles. The 10 Most Embarrassing Things to Admit in Los Angeles. And I'm not going to lie, as I waited for that page to load, I was getting a little nervous, like, oh, please don't let me be guilty of more than five. Like, I'm okay if we're in that, like, four range, but once we get past five, like, it just gets awkward. So I'm waiting for it to load, and as it loads, I start to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief, like, whew, all right, I'm not, I'm, we're good to go. Number 10, the most, the tenth most shameful thing to admit in Los Angeles is this, owning a non-rescue dog. We are in the clear. I, no worries there. Number nine, you've never been on a hike. All right, like I, I've huffed and I've puffed. I've been dragged against my will, but I've hiked. All right, I have been on many, many, many hikes. Not guilty there. Some of them, though, it's, it's not looking so good. Number five, this is number five, and this applies to most of you in this room. You live in the valley. It's a shameful thing to admit in Los Angeles. Hey, not over here, though. Yeah, you guys are good. You guys are good. If in case you're curious, the most shameful thing to admit if you live in Los Angeles is this. Owning a flip phone. So I don't know if any of you here are guilty of that. According to LA Weekly, we got one. We got a witness. There it is. The most shameful person in Los Angeles right there. Most of the things on this list were goofy, and they're most things that you can just kind of shrug off. Like, all right, that's pretty funny. But there was one thing. There was one thing on that list that caught my attention, and it was number six. According to LA Weekly, the sixth most shameful thing to admit in Los Angeles is this, being a Christian. This is what the subtext read. It's weird, because LA is like the world capital of kooky spiritual beliefs, and Christianity is perhaps the kookiest spiritual belief of all. But unlike 12 steps groups, Kabbalah, or the Marianne Williamson lecture circuit, Christianity is deeply uncool. Now, I just want to let everyone in this room know, like, I have no delusions of coolness. Like, I realize I'm a caricature of myself. Like, I am not the coolest kid in the class. There's a national song that says, when you light into a room, or when you walk into a room, you do not light it up. I just know that's me. I'm not the cool guy. Like, Matt and Tyler, they are the cool guys, right? Like, I'm just trying to keep up with these guys, okay? Like, I'm just trying to do cool things to get cool bucks to put in my cool bank, all right? Like, they, those guys are way ahead of me on the cool specter. I'm, I've been left in the dust. So I wasn't really offended that LA Weekly called me uncool or said I was kooky. But it does kind of raise a question. How, how do we respond to this? What, what should our response be when we're just living out our faith? We're just minding our own business. We're living out the Christian life. We're trying to be salt and light in our neighborhood. And it's met with either suspicion or hostility. What do we do? The great reformer, Martin Luther, once said this about human nature. He said, human nature is like a drunk man on a horse. He gets up 
and he falls off the right side of that horse. He dusts himself off, and with great resolve, he looks at that horse and says, I will not fall off the right side. I will not fall off the right side. He climbs up and promptly falls off the left side. In American Christianity, we have been falling off of one side of the horse and the other for hundreds of years. Whenever we're, we're met with hostility or with questions, or when a culture just looks at us as weirdos, Christians have gone to one or two directions. On the one hand, some Christians say, what, you think I'm weird? All right, I'm going to take my basketball, and I'm going home. I'm going to build a cabin in the woods. We're going to make our own shirts. We're going to make our own music. We're going to write our own books. That's all we're going to wear. That's all we're going to listen to. That's all we're going to watch. You don't want to party with us? We're going to party without you. We are leaving you behind. Peace out, world. And that, that response has largely been called fundamentalism, when Christians face a hostile world and they leave. The other response, though, is the other side of the horse. The other response says, oh, do you think Christians are weird? Yeah, it is kind of weird to believe in a resurrection, huh? It's kind of weird to believe that the Bible is God's word. Yeah, I think that's weird, too. I don't believe that. Like, just scratch that off our list. We're still Christians. We don't believe that weird stuff. That, that side of the horse has largely been called neo orthodoxy. So, so what do we do? What's the right response? How do we stay off of one side of the horse or the other? How do we, how do we fight when we're, we're met with, with hostility or we're met with just weird looks? How do we respond? Well, that's what our text this morning is about. Our text this morning answers that question. How do we respond when we're looked at strangely, and that strangeness might even turn into a little bit of hostility. How do we respond? So if you're taking notes this morning, this is our main point. This is the main idea. This is where we're going. This is what all this passage points to. This passage tells us this, that your future gives you an assurance so powerful and so sure that you can use your circumstances to show people what Jesus is like. So instead of responding with fear and running, or instead of responding with fear and, and just hiding the Christian message, just losing our identity as Christians, Peter tells us we have a different way. That the future that Christ gave us gives us an assurance so powerful, so sure, that our circumstances can be used to show people Jesus instead of running from these people. How are we going to get there? Well, first, first we're going to go here. We need to see how our, our circumstances, we need to see our suffering through the lens of the future. That's what this book has been about. That's where we're going to go. We're going to, we're going to dig down deep. Peter wants you to really understand who you are. Who are you and how should you respond to your future? We're going to get there. Then after we start to understand this future that's waiting for us, we can look at a world that looks at us weirdly or may even being hostile to us and we can forgive. We can forgive because we trust God's future justice. And after we've worked our way through what forgiveness looks like, we're going to talk about another response when we're met with questions and hostility. We're going to talk about serving. We can serve this world because our identity is not at stake by our circumstances. All right? So if you have your Bible, 1 Peter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. If you don't have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Here we go. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless and wild living, so they heap insults on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Above all else, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sin. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray, and then let's look at this passage. Heavenly Father, your word tells us to be alert and sober-minded for the purpose of prayer, God. God, there are so many of us who are walking through this world. We're living in an uncertain moment, Lord, and we don't know how to respond. God, help us, help us to be alert and sober-minded so that we don't, we don't just freak out. We don't just run to Twitter to create a hashtag to fight for ourselves. We don't play the victim card. We don't run away in fear. We don't, we don't head for the hills, and we don't sell the farm, God. God, I pray you'd help us to, to see this passage, what it's offering us. It's offering us a future that is secure, and that that security would help us stay and show people what Jesus is like. Lord, I pray for your help this morning, God. God, we need your word to just wake up our hearts, and only you can do that, Lord. So God, please show up in this room this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've been with us for any, any length of time, you know this series is called Futures. And you might be wondering, like, why did we call it Futures? Well, we get that actually from the beginning of the book of 1 Peter. You see, 1 Peter was written to people who, they didn't grow up in Bible-believing homes. They didn't grow up singing kids' songs. They didn't grow up going to Awana. They grew up in largely pagan contexts. And so what happens was they become Christians, their life changes, and the people around them are like, what is going on? And so it created a lot of tension in these people's lives. And so they reach out to Peter, like, Peter, what's going on? Like, Peter, you said the gospel's good news, but my life seems to be careening out of control. Peter, you said that Jesus won a victory, and now everybody in my life is looking at me like, are you really one of us? Like, what's going on with you? So they're, they're suffering, and they reach out to Peter, and they're saying, why? What's going on? Did we miss the boat? Did we not get something here? That's what suffering does. Suffering makes you ask those why questions, and those are good questions. You can bring those tough questions to God. He's big enough to handle them, and this is how Peter responds. Peter responds by saying this, hey, you are walking through tough situations. Like, that's just a reality of what's going on, but that's it. What you're walking through isn't your identity. It's just that. It's something you're walking through. It's not the truest thing about you, it's not your identity. What is your identity? This is how he opens up the book. This is what he says. He says, because of the victory of Jesus, because Jesus rose from the dead, that gave you an inheritance. And what does he say about that inheritance? He says this in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. He says, uh, this inheritance can never perish, 
spoil, or fade. It's an inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So what Peter's saying is, this, hey, yeah, you are walking through tough circumstances, but guess what? There's a future, huh, cool, yeah? There's a future that's waiting for you that is better than your circumstance. This future can give you an assurance. This future is the truest thing about you. He's trying to work. He's trying to peel back the skin and dig this deep down in you. This is your identity. You're not one who suffers. You are an heir of the kingdom of God. That, let that shape the way you look at your suffering. Your suffer- imagine if we took John Lennon's thought experiment, if we took that seriously, okay? Imagine there's no heaven, right? It's a great song. I'm really not trying to poo-poo on John Lennon, I promise. But like, if we really did that, if we really imagined there's no heaven, what does that mean when we approach suffering, when we approach things that don't go our way? We gotta fight for ourselves. There's no justice coming. This is it. So you stole something from me? I gotta get that back. But Peter's saying, no, this world isn't it. He's trying to lift our eyes up and point us to the future that Jesus won for us. What kind of future is it? Well, it's an inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, or fade. So if you leave it out of the fridge all night, it's not going to go bad. If Jesus, if it takes him a long time to come back, that inheritance won't lose its luster. It's still waiting for you. Well, yeah, but people are making us suffer. Like, we're looked at like weirdos. What are we supposed to do? Well, you know what? It's being guarded in heaven. None of these people who are making you suffer can take anything away from you. This is a future that's so secure, you can walk through these things, and it doesn't have to destroy you. It doesn't take away the pain. Yeah, like, there are people maligning you. That hurts. But it's not your core identity. It's something you're walking through. So throughout this book, Peter's been showing how that future shapes our responses to various things. Are you stuck in the middle of a bad government? Well, you don't do things that sin, but you can submit to that government because this government isn't the last word. There is a coming king who is a good king, a righteous king, and a just king, and you're headed for that kingdom. You are just passing through this one. So we can live You know what? We can pay those outrageous taxes with joy because this isn't all we have. It's not our ultimate treasure. Then he moves beyond government, talks about family. What about your family? Stuck in a bad family life? Well, that's not the last word either. And now he gets to the point in this book, chapter 4, which we just read. What about when you're just living your life and your friends start to pick on you? Because that's what's happening. We need to understand a little bit of background. Sometimes it's very easy to read our American context into this context. And they were not Americans, okay? So what's happening here, this is written in the Greco-Roman world. And in the Greco-Roman world, there wasn't really this separation of church and state like there is in the West. The Greco-Roman world um, had this goddess named Diana. And people worshipped this goddess through temple prostitutes and drinking parties. And you'd go to these temple, you'd see a temple prostitute, get drunk, and that would excite the gods, and then they'd bless your town. So when these people who now get freed from the power of sin, they stop doing these things, their neighbors are like, yo, like, what are you doing? Don't you care about us? Like, this is how we get blessing for our, our communities. Why aren't you participating? Like, don't you care about us? And they start to look at, this is what verse 4 says, they start to look at you 
with the surprise, like, what's going on? But then that surprise slowly starts to turn to insults, and they start to insult them. And we know this was happening because in seminary, I had to translate the second century letter that it was a letter to a guy, and it was a defense, and this sounds made up, but I promise it's not. It was a defense for why Christians don't eat babies. There was a rumor, so if you have all these temple prostitutes, think about it, there's lots of unwanted pregnancies, so these babies would be abandoned. Christians were going around and saving those babies from the streets, and rumors started circulating around like, Christians eat babies. That's why they save them. They are weirdos who eat babies. So this letter is saying like, no, they're actually saving them. That love feast that you hear about, it's actually this thing called communion. No babies are getting eaten. So that's happening then. Some of you are like, well, you know, I get it. Like, that's happening then. But maybe, is that really happening now? Like, are Christians being maligned? Like, who are really living out their faith? Like, not the ones that, like, have issues and, like, we're, we're being loud and obnoxious. But, like, are, are calm, quiet, collected, godly Christians, like everyone in this room, are we being maligned just for living out our faith? And the answer to that, it's tricky, but... I can tell you this from personal experience. The answer to that one is a yes and no. Some of you are walking in situations where you have family members who, because you're a Christian, they just look at you like, with, oh, like, oh, I get it. Like, this, we're tired of so-and-so. Others of you, when, when you admit you're a Christian, it's kind of this like, okay, okay. Like, I don't know what to do with that, but okay. Like, I, I meet a lot of awesome people, and there's always a point in the conversation where they ask me what I do. And so this is a true story. I was, I was at a grocery store buying bananas for church. And as I'm checking out, I didn't, I didn't know that that proposition had passed where California doesn't have bags anymore. And so the guy's like, oh, yeah, you got to pay for bags. And I was like, what? Ah, Burbank, you were like my last bastion of bags. Like, why? Why can't we get bags? And so I was talking to this guy, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's the worst. Like, you know, my pot dispensary, like, they made me pay for a bag there too. I was like, oh, yeah, that is the worst. Like, that's awful. <laughs> And he's like, hey, man, what are all these bananas for? And I was like, well, I'm a pastor of a church, and we eat bananas, and then we worship Jesus. <laughs> oh, right on. Just killed the conversation. Maybe, like, the way I answered it killed the conversation, but <laughs> it was just this, like, dead. So that's the context that these people are in. And what do we do? Like, some of us, I don't know about you, I don't like being in awkward situations. That may surprise some of you because I'm in awkward situations a lot. But I don't like awkward situations. What do we do when we're faced with awkward situations? Well, Peter's saying, based on that future that's waiting for us, there's two responses. You forgive and you serve. So that for, we're going to look at that forgive first. Forgive, I get that idea of forgiveness through verses 4 and 5. This is what he says. They're surprised that you don't join in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you, but they'll have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I know this is a room full of incredibly sharp people. And I, as sharp people that you are, you're saying, Craig, I heard what you just read. I heard what you just said. You said this passage says we need to forgive. I, I do not see the word forgive anywhere in this passage. And you're totally right. The word forgiveness isn't in this passage. Peter doesn't use the word forgiveness, but he describes the process of forgiveness. So what does forgiveness really look like? Some of you have this definition of forgiveness when you sin against me, and so I just, I need to forgive you. So, okay, I just let it go. Hey, no worries, man. Like, yeah, you hurt me, but I'm just letting go. Not a big deal. That's not how the Bible defines forgiveness. And what Peter is describing here is how the Bible defines forgiveness. How the Bible defines forgiveness is when you wrong me, I have two options. 
I can either personally seek my own justice and punish you, whether that's either emotional or actually physical. So if you, if you embarrass me, if you make me feel small, I can take justice into my own hands and say, I'm going to embarrass you right back. I'm going to make you feel small. Or I can actually physically go after you, which in my case is a terrible idea. <laughs> but what forgiveness is, forgiveness is this. Forgiveness recognizes vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Forgiveness says, hey, you harmed me. That harm was real. You took something from me but I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to trust it to God. And that's what Peter says in this passage. He says, hey, people who are maligning you, they have to give an account to God. Don't punish them. Trust that to God's future justice. You see how that's the future even in there? The future is coming where we all have to give an account. And those of us who have sinned, our sins will either be paid for by Jesus on the cross or we pay for our sins ourselves. And Peter says, trust God's future judgment. Don't take justice into your own hands. This definition of forgiveness really worked its way deep into my heart when I was in seminary. So I don't know if you can tell, but public speaking is not really my forte. Like, I just, it's not natural for me. I get super nervous. Like, this sweater was a mistake. I'm sweating. (laughs) So to get practice for that, I was like, I'm going to preach at a nursing home during, during seminary. This is great. They'll probably be asleep. Like, it's just, I'm technically in front of people. It will just get me that, you know, what I need to just start doing public speaking. So I go to these nursing homes, and, like, it's kind of a false advertisement. These people were super sharp. And so a lot of times I would have really great discussions after the service, and I honestly look back on that time with a lot of fond memories. But there was one Sunday evening when I just preached at a nursing home, and a nursing home employee came and got me, and she said, Hey, Craig, Miss Ruth wants to talk to you. Yeah, you know Miss Ruth. You know her. Every nursing home has a Miss Ruth, right? So I'm like, all right, yeah, I'll talk to her. So I sit down across from her, and we start to make a little bit of small talk. I'm like, hey, Miss Ruth, I heard you want to talk to me. What's going on? And she says, I don't even remember what I preached on, but she said something like, hey, I, I heard what you said in there. You said that God's love transforms us so we can love our enemies. What about me? Well, what do you mean? She said, I'm a Holocaust survivor. I still, when I close my eyes, I can see those people who hurt me. Beyond that, when the war was over, I was just starting to get on my feet. I'm starting to make a little bit of money. And this guy who was in authority over me abused the situation and assaulted me, took my money, and left me high and dry. And I will never forget the look on her face. She looked in my eyes and she said, Craig, when I think about the people who hurt me, when I, when I think about how I was wronged, I just wish they were dead. I hate them. Can you imagine in that moment if my response was, hey, Miss Ruth, you need to let it go. Just let it go, all right? Just forgive and forget. Move on. No, no, no. What biblical forgiveness is, it says, yeah, you were wronged. You were wronged in a deep way. We don't want to cheapen that wrong. Like, you, you matter, and your hurt matters. But you can't take justice into your own hands. You have to trust. There is a coming day when they will give an account for that to a righteous judge. And you have to trust his justice. You can't take that into your own hands. See how the future helps us respond? The future helps us respond. This isn't it. I don't have to fight for my own justice. I have a king who's fought my battles and he will fight for my justice in the future. Some of you are really suffering. Some of you 
things have happened to you that are unspeakable and horrible. This is the response we have. Some of you are just living your life and people think you're like a weirdo. They write articles about you in LA Weekly. Your response is this, hey, I'm not going to go after that person. I, I don't need to punish you. I can trust that to God. But the purpose of trusting it to God is not like, you wait, you wait. Listen, Peter fights against that attitude as well. He says this, this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they would not be judged according to the body, but they would live according to the spirit of God. We forgive so that we can give people a picture of the gospel. And that's what he says earlier in this book. He says this, he's describing Jesus when they hurled insults at him. He says, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So when Jesus is at his crucifixion, when he's being judged, and when these people are heaping insults on him, he's not like, you're right, I am pretty stupid, I'm sorry. No, he's, he knows what they're saying is wrong, but he's entrusting himself to a judge who will take care of this mess one day. So that's the first thing. That's the first way we can stay present. We forgive. We have a future that's so secure, it enables us to forgive. What's the second way? The second way, well, really, it's number three on there. That's confusing, and it's my fault. <laughs> After we've forgiven people, we move into a posture of service, and we can serve because our circumstances don't put our future at stake. H have you ever worked with people who their identity is just at stake with everything? They want you to know, like, hey, I'm a financial service representative, too. Wait, not one, two. I'm, I, I want you to know who I am. Their identity is at stake. They just got to let you know that. Well, Peter says, hey, we, we've been wronged. We've, we've suffered in this situation, and we are still heirs of the kingdom of God. We can serve the people who are making us suffer unjustly. And in doing so, we're going to give them a picture of Jesus. So um, one of the favorite titles for Jesus in both the Old Testament from the prophets and the New Testament with the apostles is this, the suffering servant. That's, that's one of the titles that they all love to use for Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 2, there was a hymn that was circulating around the early church. Paul takes that hymn and he puts it in the middle of Philippians. And it's called the Song of the Suffering Servant. And this is how that song goes. It says, Who being in very nature God, it's talking about Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the form of a servant. So if anybody has a right to rub their identity, their credentials in your face, it's Jesus. But did he do that? No, when he came, it says he didn't think equality with God was something to be used to his own advantage. Hey, Jesus, would you get me that? Do you know who I am? I don't get that. I have a friend that lived like this in a weird way. So uh, Amy and I, we have a good friend who, when he was 27, he got his PhD and an associate professorship. Like, just a super smart guy. So he looked really young. And one of the things that he loved to do was he loved to mess with, with his students that were coming in to take his class. He would sit with them before each semester, before the class started, and they'd be like, oh, man, like, I've heard about this young professor. I'm so excited to take him. He's super cool. He's really smart. He's like, nah, the guy's overrated. 
And they're, what? Yeah, I wouldn't take this class. Like, he's just not that cool. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like, I've heard all these things. He's really highly rated on Rate My Professor. Like, you got you to gotta take this guy. I wouldn't take this class. Okay. And so they, they start talking. And then as class starts, he loved going up to the lecture and just looking at horrified looks on these people's face like, what is this guy doing? And he, he loved messing with people that way because he had nothing at stake. He was young, but he wasn't like, hey, do you know, you know what? I finished my PhD really early. You know who I am? No, his, his identity was secure. And that's what this passage says about us. It says this. It says, uh, above all. Whenever, whenever scripture says above all, we do a really good job to pay attention. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Each one of you should use whatever gifts you have to serve one another. Serving is only made possible, true biblical serving is made possible by people who their identity isn't at stake. But hey, let me get that for you. Did you see I got that for you? Did you see that? Yeah, I did that. You know, we don't want, we don't want to like turn the game that way. But it's like, hey, you know what? Yeah, you wronged me. You, you called me a name. The last thing I want to do is I, I want to serve you, but I'm going to serve you. And that gives people a picture of the Savior. Um, like I said earlier, Matt and Tyler are way cooler than me. And also, there's no clock. I have no idea if I'm, like, way over, but all right, thanks, Tom. So <laughs> Tom is way cooler than me, too. So Matt and Tyler, way cooler than me, and so I'm always looking for opportunities to put cool bucks in my cool bank. And so I was at the library the other day, and I found it. I found a way to, to be cool at the library. Um, there was a Rolling Stone magazine had uh, compiled all the essential interviews of Bob Dylan. I was like, hey, that's what cool kids do. They read. I got this. And so I started reading it, and it was really interesting. In 1964, Dylan was being interviewed by The New Yorker, and they asked him, like, hey, what's it like being famous? To which Dylan replies, it is really hard, and I don't really like it. One of the things that happens when you're famous is you get all kinds of letters and people come up to you and they just have a wonderful plan for your life. So it's like, you know, people tell me, hey, this is what a folk artist should be. You shouldn't do this, you should do this. But then it moves beyond art and it moves into my own life. Like, hey, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't smoke. You shouldn't do all these things. You need to be this type of person. And Dylan said, that's really confusing to me. Like, I don't know what people say what they mean when they say do this don't do that do this don't do that i don't want them to tell me what to do i'd rather they show me what to do that's what this passage gives you an invitation to do i'm sure you've heard it before but the statistic is that la has one church for every 26,000 people Okay, so this LA Weekly article, I'm confident, I don't know, but I'd be willing to bet money, is born out of the soil of someone who just doesn't know Christians. Like, they don't know Christians, so it's easy to just like throw these rocks. And they don't know Christians because when things get hard, we do one of two things. We either head for the hills and say, you know what, you're making fun of me, I'm out, or we sell out and you can't even tell we're Christians. Well, what Peter is saying is this, hey, your future that future that's waiting for you, it's giving you an inheritance that lets you stay. It keeps you here and it lets you paint a picture of Jesus for people who would otherwise never see him. So instead of running when we're insulted, we can forgive. We can say, you know what? You're heaping all these insults on me. You know they're not true. I can let this go. Instead of when 
our family members that you're going to see at Thanksgiving, try to you know, get those little edges in on you. Instead of that, you can serve them from a sincere heart. And in doing so, you're showing people what Jesus is like. When he was falsely accused, what did he do? He didn't say anything. Why? Because he was serving mankind by dying for our sins. He was able to do that because his identity was so secure. And now we paint a picture of Jesus for a culture that desperately needs that picture. Isn't it kind of a funny reaction that when we get picked on, we run? Uh, Nassim Tlaib, he's a controversial investment guru. Um, He has this book where he talks about how there are certain plants that it takes harsh conditions for them to grow. Christianity is one of those plants that we grow really well in harsh conditions. So I don't know what the future holds for any of us. I don't. Like, that, the future has been on a lot of people's minds. The future of this country, the future of technology. Is AI going to take all our jobs? Are driverless cars going like, to... What's, what's, what's happening? We don't know the future. But what we do know is we have a future that's waiting for us, where we're heirs of the kingdom of God. So whatever happens to us, we can show people Jesus and invite them to be heirs of that same kingdom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is clear and that it speaks to the situations we walk in. God, I pray that you'd help every one of us, Lord. We are all going to be able to tangibly apply this passage this week, Lord, around family members. God, I pray that you would help us not to, not to cower in fear, not to lose our Christian identity, and not to head for the hills, but to, to be present, to represent Jesus for people who normally don't get to see him. So God, I pray that you'd give us the strength and the courage to do that. I pray for all of us that we'd, we would do that in community. We would encourage one another, God. I pray you'd help us to forgive and serve our neighbors. And so all these things in Jesus' name, amen.